Nirvana happened when I was 16, I think. Um, but I had been, you know, obsessively trying to educate myself about pop music for a number of years before that, probably two or three years, I don't know. I had wandered into this thing, like most kids at that time, through MTV's 120 Minutes, because I'm living in the suburbs and I have no idea what's going on. But MTV is dedicating two hours of programming every Sunday night to, well, prejudicially British um, synth pop. Um, as hosted and presented by Dave Kendall. Checking out the latest videos from We Are Gonna Eat You, The Sugar Cubes, AC Maria's, Galaxy 500, and Murphy's Law, Nine Inch Nails, and Frank Toby. When MTV saw the numbers for these offbeat, strange videos and, and these bands that weren't showing up on the charts and weren't on the radio, they put together two things. One was postmodern MTV. Now, this was a primetime show Kevin Seal hosted where they did a half an hour and they would show, you know, without fail, uh, Sinead O'Connor, Nothing Compares to You, The Cure, Fascination Street, or Just Like Heaven, Love and Rockets, So Alive. It was the same songs, like, every time out. But it was a way for them to say, these records are selling, and kids are talking about these records, and they're not getting through to FM radio. It was a pretty appreciable step to take at that time. The Fall have released seven studio albums, but the new one on Big Time Records is the first to have major distribution in the States. It's called Doomsday Payoff. MTV didn't really start to suck shit until the real world happened. You just didn't watch it during certain hours if you didn't want to see fucking Color Me Bad or whatever. You just stayed away and you knew that the stuff you wanted to see was going to come on on Sunday night for two hours or it was going to come on at 7.30 and whatever night that postmodern MTV happened. And you get your fix. MTV was helping. I mean, for Christ's sake, they showed the video for Ministry Stigmata. In 1988. It's not like Ministry were like an obscure indie act or something like that. They had been a synth Depeche Mode band. They were around. They had label deals. But that was some pretty harsh shit. I mean, I'm sure Steve Albini wants to tell you how soft it is and what a pussy Al Jorgensen is. But the fact is, Stigmata was some of the most fucking crazy shit anybody had heard. I mean, Ian McKay worked with the guy. They did a record together under the name Palehead. did that Thousand Homo DJs single where they um, covered Supernaut by Black Sabbath. I was never one to, to put Al Jorgensen up on a cross and nail him to every day is Halloween and say, you suck forever because at one point you thought Depeche Mode was cool and you were an Anglophile and you had big black hair and sang in a British accent. Who gives a shit? You know, Steve Albini has got this real like puritanic Cotton Mather thing about what is and isn't cool. He likes to think the ministry were EMF. Oh, oh, so 
and that every day is Halloween was unbelievable. But Ministry put out like some really great records. Land of Rape and Honey. A mind is a terrible thing to taste. Psalm 69. You're lucky to have records that good in your entire discography over 15 years. To put them out sequentially, back to back to back, if you like one note of any of those records, all three of them are phenomenal for you. I talked before about Nirvana. That was the breakthrough thing for a lot of people. It opened a lot of people's eyes, sure. But I had been into this for a little while, and for me, it was about Jane's addiction. It was about nothing shocking. That's the record that opened the door for me. I mean, I can't say that R.E.M. is much of an eye-opener, because, I mean, even then, my parents had, like, the Seekers and the Mamas and the Papas and the Birds. When you're hearing all that stuff around the house, what R.E.M. is doing is not really shaking the foundation of your belief in what's okay in society. The cover of Nothing Shocking is a papier-mâché sculpture of two nude women fused on top of a rocker with their hair on fire. Jane's Addiction were big into drugs. They couldn't keep it together. And they put together this tour, this farewell tour, where they were going to get all the best bands and all their favorite bands together, and they were going to call it Lollapalooza. Lollapalooza was a watershed moment. There's no doubt about it. For the 120 Minutes generation, it was a huge deal, and it happened when I was turning 16. So it was like extra huge for me and where I was. I had just started experimenting with, you know, substances and alcohol around this time. The people I was going with hadn't started messing around and experimenting with drugs or alcohol yet. So I knew I was on my own with this. And I didn't know the kid who gave us a ride. He ended up being much older. I think he was like 19. And I go, I run out in the pouring rain. It's like 1030 in the morning. And I slam a bottle of warm Chardonnay. And I like immediately puke it back out. And then the kid pulls up in like his, you know, Buick Skylark or whatever the fuck it was. And I get in and I'm like passing out. I'm a total fucking wreck. And the whole way there, the only thing I remember is like, you know, like half waking up and looking in the rearview mirror and seeing this guy who's driving looking at me like, is this kid going to fucking die? So we get there and the whole reason we're excited about this, the first Lollapalooza, besides Jane's Addiction, which everybody was into, is Susie and the Banshees are on this fucking tour. The Kodo drummers from Hell. Yeah! Oh, they're my heroes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you live the Kodo drummers thing right there. That was fucking serious. Serious Kodo. And I'm like, you know, a big Cure, Susie and the Banshees, New Order, Anglophile guy at this point. And we get there and Susie and the Banshees aren't fucking there. They bagged on this show. Because Budgie, the drummer, had like a pretty bad alcohol problem and he... I mean, not in the sense that he was day-to-day -day pounding vodka, but he would go on these crazy binges for like two or three days and just vanish. Um, and I think what happened was that after they played in um, SPAC in like Saratoga upstate, 
he got really fucked up or something and they lost him and Susie's voice was bothering her and they were just like, fuck this. And they didn't come to Mansfield. They had this massive, you know, Boston area goth teen college base. It was a huge mistake for Susie and the Banshees to blow that gig. So everybody was sort of pissed off about that. And I don't remember all that much about the show because, like I said, I was sort of coming out of this weird alcohol poisoning thing and then I downed a bunch of codeine and threw that up. The first memory I have coming to is that Nine Inch Nails were coming on. I was super psyched to see them because Pretty Hate Machine was like, you know, a foundational record for anybody in the late 80s. And especially if you're like a self-pitying, self-mythologizing, you know, rebel wearing black and all that. Yeah, of course. You're just like, kind of, I want to. The funniest thing is that Trent Reznor, uh, I guess he like smashed all his shit or he wanted to buy shitty guitars that he could smash. And he raided the music smith and the fucking mall in Kingston, Massachusetts before the gig. He bought up every guitar they had. And I didn't know anything about guitars at this point, but I think he, I think he ended up playing like a fucking Epiphone for the show. Cause I mean, what does he really even play? You know, a distortion pedal. He doesn't play guitar. He plays an effects rig. He goes to introduce Down In It, which had been getting really heavy rotation, even like daytime rotation on MTV in 1989. That song really crossed over. It made him. And the CD single sold extremely well, almost as well as the album at one point. Down in it is like Nine Inch Nails, How Soon Is Now. It's like a mid-tempo European synth pop song. And before they go to play it, Trent Reznor's like, You pussies probably know this one! And the entire place is like, Maybe we do. Why, why does that make us pussies? You're a fucking dick. And he was wearing like spandex and shit, and it, like, he had like the Jesus Jones keyboardist with the fucking fake dreads jumping around and like pretending that he was rocking the fuck out of his keyboard. I went to the first three Lollapaloozas, right? Uh, with the, what stands out in my mind about them, the first one, Living Color, was on the bill. Now, Perry Farrell made this big deal about how Metallica represented the destruction of the Lollapalooza ideal. And when Metallica were put on the bill in 1996, he made this big stake and he quit. Well, I mean, the first fucking one had Living Color on it. Pearl Jam were on the second one. The headlining band on the second one was Red Hot Chili Peppers. But the band before them is Ministry. And that's the band, that's like literally the only band I went to see. Jesus and Mary Chain and Ministry. There's something about that 1992 Lollapalooza. The other bands on the bill were kind of not that high energy. They certainly weren't as aggressive. The whole show was really kind of fractious and boring and just not doing it. See a lot of bored kids, a lot of people doing drugs, a lot of people drinking. And it gets to be nighttime, and because they're an industrial band, all their sounds are, are completely homogenized and really crisp. And they come out there and they do Supernaut, and the place goes fucking crazy. I mean, I was part of this. We ripped down the fence. We set up these huge bonfires. I mean, like, flames are going like 100 feet in the fucking sky. It was insane. The National Guard came out in riot gear, encircled the entire arena. 
I mean, I the vision I have that I remember from this is like a, a woman who must have been in either her late 20s or early 30s in like 90 whole Doc Martens that came up to her knees crying and pleading with all of us that were running around like Lord of the Flies around these bonfires to stop because it was too fucking out of control. She couldn't deal with it. The organizers in Mansfield were so bullshit about the fires in 92 that it was in fucking Rhode Island. So we had to drive all the way to Quonset State Airport in Rhode Island, which it was really fucking hot, and there were no trees for like eight miles. Lollapalooza 3 was really a shit show. 1993, they had way too many bands, way too much nonsense. I mean, they had unrest on the second stage for a lot of the tour, and that's just not a fucking environment where unrest should have been playing ever. The thing that really sucked about Lollapalooza in 1993, besides the fact that I got knocked unconscious um, during Here Come the Bastards when Primus started playing, having no idea that, you know, moshing had become this mainstream concept and kids were just dying to mosh. And they were jumping everywhere. And this one kid flipped over and his Doc Martin again hit me right on the fucking forehead, knocked me stone cold. Some guy pulled me out of the pit that was forming. I don't know who this guy is, but I mean, conceivably, I could have just fallen on the ground and gotten my gut stomped out, so I guess I owe him something. Thanks. The reason I wanted to go to this show, the only band I was interested in seeing, was Mercury Rev. And they weren't there. Why? I never got an explanation for this, and there was no press about it, because who gives a shit? It's a second stage band, right? Nobody's going to see them. I fucking was. I loved Mercury Rev. Those first two Mercury Rev records, Your Self-Esteem and Bosies, completely changed my life. On their, the back of their albums, it said that they were recorded on 35mm film, I believe. They were using weird recording techniques to try and arrive at different sonic footprints than, you know, other recordings of the time. The frequency they were able to generate with that 35mm tape setup was so low that, and their recordings were so close to the mic and analog, that when they got to the mastering plant, I think they spiked or blew a board at Sony's mastering facility. They got put on the second stage for Lollapalooza. And I mean, I don't know who made this decision and didn't think like, yeah, this is going to be insane. By the time they got to Denver, people were really pissed off because Mercury were drowning out the main stage. They were so fucking loud. A lot of bands have tried to do this whole loudest band in the world thing, you know, and made it, you know, a kind of a standard bear for what they're going to do. We're going to go out there and we're going to blow the fucking doors off this place. Well, that's great. But, you know, if your band sounds like the fucking Foo Fighters, who gives a shit? When you come out with something like, you know, Coney Island Cyclone, 
or or you know something for Joey, any of the pop songs, these crazy pop songs that they had, um, and you just turn it up so loud that people are like deafened. It's so disorienting. experience this they got thrown off the fucking tour two dates after Colorado one of the things that really bothers me about the internet referendum on what Mercury Rev are is that so many people my age seem to think that Mercury Rev really came into their own with deserter songs I fucking hate that album. Mercury Rev hasn't done a goddamn thing worth listening to since Bosey's. Nothing. I mean, they're not the same fucking band. Get those first two albums, your self-esteem and Bosey's, and forget the rest of it. I mean, if you like that late period Mercury Rev stuff, great. You go have a time with that. But that band needs to be split in fucking half in terms of how history remembers them. From when David Baker was in the band until he wasn't. It really irritates the shit out of me when Mercury Rev get the same reputation as like the fucking Verve. You know, because all these British writers decided that they were this classic Americana band and they were the new Galaxy 500 in the late 90s when Deserter Songs took off. It's such a betrayal of the people who went on that trip with them, who appreciated how far they took things and how when they had a major label deal, they exploited the shit out of it. They put out a CD that had 99 tracks on it. There were like three other CDs in the whole history of the format that had done anything with the idea of, you know, maxing out track numbers with the two-second pause, or using the rewind button to create fake stuff inside the index of the song. For my money, they were the best band going in the early 90s. <laughs> 